Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville, Part 9. Chapter 55 of The Monstrous Pictures of Whales. I shall ere long paint to you, as well as one can without canvas, something like the true form of the whale as he actually appears to the eye of the whaleman when in his own absolute body the whale is moored alongside the whale ship so that he can be fairly stepped upon there. It may be worth while, therefore, previously to advert to those curious imaginary portraits of him which even down to the present day confidently challenge the faith of the landsman. It is time to set the world right in this matter, by proving such pictures of the whale all wrong. It may be that the primal source of all those pictorial delusions will be found among the oldest Hindu, Egyptian, and Grecian sculptures. For ever since those inventive but unscrupulous times when on the marble panelings of temples, the pedestals of statues, and on shields, medallions, cups, and coins, the dolphin was drawn in scales of chain armor like Saladin's and a helmeted head like St. George's. Ever since then has something of the same sort of license prevailed, not only in most popular pictures of the whale, but in many scientific presentations of him. Now, by all odds, the most ancient extant portrait, anyways, purporting to be the whales, is to be found in the famous cavern pagoda of Elephanta in India. The Brahmins maintain that in the almost endless sculptures of that immemorial pagoda, all the trades and pursuits, every conceivable avocation of man were prefigured ages before any of them actually came into being. No wonder, then, that in some sort our noble profession of whaling should have been there shadowed forth. The Hindu whale referred to occurs in a separate department of the wall, depicting the incarnation of Vishnu in the form of Leviathan, learnedly known as the Matsi Avatar. But though this sculpture is half man and half whale, so as only to give the tail of the latter, yet that small section of him is all wrong. It looks more like the tapering tail of an anaconda than the broad palms of the true whale's majestic flukes. But go to the old galleries and look now at the great Christian painter's portrait of this fish, for he succeeds no better than the antediluvian Hindu. It is Guido's picture of Perseus rescuing Andromeda from the sea monster or whale. Where did Guido get the model of such a strange creature as that? Nor does Hogarth, in painting the same scene in his own Perseus Descending, make out one whit better. The huge corpulence of that Hogarthian monster undulates on the surface, scarcely drawing one inch of water. 
It has a sort of howdah on its back, and its distended, tusked mouth into which the billows are rolling might be taken for the trader's gate leading from the Thames by water into the tower. Then there are the prodromus whales of old Scotch Sibbald and Jonah's whale, as depicted in the prints of old Bibles and the cuts of old primers. What shall be said of these? As for the bookbinder's whale, winding like a vine stalk round the stalk of a descending anchor, as stamped and gilded on the backs and title pages of many books, both old and new, that is a very picturesque but purely fabulous creature, imitated, I take it, from the like figures on antique vases. Though universally denominated a dolphin, I nevertheless call this bookbinder's fish an attempt at a whale because it was so intended when the device was first introduced. It was introduced by an old Italian publisher somewhere about the 15th century during the revival of learning. And in those days, and even down to a comparatively late period, dolphins were popularly supposed to be a species of the Leviathan. In the vignettes and other embellishments of some ancient books, you will at times meet with some very curious touches at the whale, where all manner of spouts, jets de dieu, Hot springs and cold, Saratoga and Baden-Baden, come bubbling up from his unexhausted brain. In the title page of the original edition of The Advancement of Learning, you will find some curious whales. But quitting all these unprofessional attempts, let us glance at those pictures of Leviathan purporting to be sober scientific delineations by those who know. In old Harris's collection of voyages, there are some plates of whales extracted from a Dutch book of voyages, A.D. 1671, entitled A Whaling Voyage to Spitsbergen in the Ship Jonas in the Whale, Peter Peterson of Friesland Master. In one of those plates, the whales, like great rafts of logs, are represented lying among ice isles, with white bears running over their living backs. In another plate, the prodigious blunder is made of representing the whale with perpendicular flukes. Then again, there is an imposing quarto, written by one Captain Colnett, a post-captain in the English Navy, entitled A Voyage Round Cape Horn into the South Seas for the Purpose of Extending the Spermaceti Whale Fisheries. In this book is an outline purporting to be a picture of a phycenter, or spermaceti whale, drawn by scale from one killed on the coast of Mexico, August 1793, and hoisted on deck. I doubt not the captain had this voracious picture taken for the benefit of his marines. To mention but one thing about it, let me say that it has an eye which, applied according to the accompanying scale to a full-grown sperm whale, would make the eye of the whale a bow window some five feet long. Ah, my gallant captain, why did you not give us Jonah looking out of that eye? Nor are the most conscientious compilations of natural history for the benefit of the young and tender free from the same heinousness of mistake. Look at that popular work, Goldsmith's Animated Nature, in the abridged London edition of 1807. There are plates of an alleged whale and narwhal. I do not wish to seem inelegant, but this unsightly whale looks much like an amputated sow. And as for the narwhal, one glimpse at it is enough to amaze one that in this 19th century such an hippogriff could be palmed for genuine upon any intelligent public of schoolboys. 
Then again, in 1825, Bernard Germain, Count de Lacapide, a great naturalist, published a scientific systemized whale book wherein are several pictures of the different species of Leviathan. All these are not only incorrect, but the picture of the Mysticetus, or Greenland whale, that is to say, the right whale, even Scoresby, a long-experienced man as touching that species, declares not to have its counterpart in nature. But the placing of the cap sheaf to all this blundering business was reserved for the scientific Frederick Cuvier, brother to the famous baron. In 1836, he published A Natural History of Whales, in which he gives us what he calls a picture of the sperm whale. Before showing that picture to any Nantucketer, you had best provide for your summary retreat from Nantucket. In a word, Frederick Cuvier's sperm whale is not a sperm whale, but a squash. Of course, he never had the benefit of a whaling voyage, such men seldom have, but once he derived that picture, who can tell? Perhaps he got it as his scientific predecessor in the same field, Desmarest, got one of his authentic abortions, that is, from a Chinese drawing. And what sort of lively lads with the pencil those Chinese are? Many queer cups and saucers inform us. As for the sign painter's whales seen in the streets hanging over the shops of oil dealers, what shall be said of them? They are generally Richard III whales, with dromedary humps and very savage breakfasting on three or four sailor tarts, that is, whaleboats full of mariners, their deformities floundering in seas of blood and blue paint. But these manifold mistakes in depicting the whale are not so very surprising after all. I consider. Most of the scientific drawings have been taken from the stranded fish, and these are about as correct as a drawing of a wrecked ship with a broken back would correctly represent the noble animal itself in all its undashed pride of hull and spars. Though elephants have stood for their full lengths, the living leviathan has never yet fairly floated himself for his portrait. The living whale, in his full majesty and significance, is only to be seen at sea in unfathomable waters, and afloat the vast bulk of him is out of sight, like a launched line of battleship. And out of that element it is a thing eternally impossible for mortal man to hoist him bodily into the air so as to preserve all his mighty swells and undulations, and not to speak of the highly presumable difference of contour between a young sucking whale and a full-grown plutonian leviathan, yet even in the case of one of those young sucking whales hoisted to a ship's deck, such is then the outlandish eel-like limbered varying shape of him that his precise expression the devil himself could not catch. But it may be fancied that from the naked skeleton of the stranded whale accurate hints may be derived touching his true form. Not at all, for it is one of the more curious things about the leviathan that his skeleton gives very little idea of his general shape. Though Jeremy Bentham's skeleton, which hangs for candelabra in the library of one of his executors, correctly conveys the idea of a burly-browed utilitarian old gentleman with all Jeremy's other leading personal characteristics, yet nothing of this kind could be inferred from any Leviathan's articulated bones. In fact, as the great hunter says, the mere skeleton of the whale bears the same relation to the fully invested and padded animal as the insect does to the chrysalis that so roundingly envelops it.
This peculiarity is strikingly evinced in the head, as in some part of this book will be incidentally shown. It is also very curiously displayed in the side fin, the bones of which almost exactly answer to the bones of the human hand, minus only the thumb. This fin has four regular bone fingers, the index, middle, ring, and little finger. But all these are permanently lodged in their fleshy covering as the human fingers in an artificial covering. However recklessly the whale may sometimes serve us, said humorous Stubb one day, he can never be truly said to handle us without mittens. For all these reasons, then, any way you may look at it, you must needs conclude that the great Leviathan is that one creature in the world which must remain unpainted to the last. True, one portrait may hit the mark much nearer than another, but none can hit it with any very considerable degree of exactness, so there is no earthly way of finding out precisely what the whale really looks like, and the only mode in which you can derive even a tolerable idea of his living contour is by going a-whaling yourself, but by so doing you run no small risk of being eternally stove and sunk by him, Wherefore, it seems to me you had best not be too fastidious in your curiosity touching this leviathan. Chapter 56 of the Less Erroneous Pictures of Whales and the True Pictures of Whaling Scenes In connection with the monstrous pictures of whales, I am strongly tempted here to enter upon those still more monstrous stories of them which are to be found in certain books, both ancient and modern, especially in Pliny, Perkis, Hacfiat, Harris, Cuvier, etc., but I pass that matter by. I know of only four published outlines of the great sperm whale, Colnett's, Huggins's, Frederick Cuvier's, and Beale's. In the previous chapter, Colnett and Cuvier have been referred to. Higgins's is far better than theirs, but by great odds, Beale's is the best. All Beale's drawings of this whale are good excepting the middle figure in the picture of three whales in various attitudes, capping his second chapter. His frontispiece, Boats Attacking Sperm Whales, though no doubt calculated to excite the civil skepticism of some parlor men, is admirably correct and lifelike in its general effect. Some of the sperm whale drawings in J. Ross Brown are pretty correct in contour, but they are wretchedly engraved. That is not his fault, though. Of the right whale, the best outlined pictures are in Scoresby, but they are drawn on too small a scale to convey a desirable impression. He has but one picture of whaling scenes, and this is sad deficiency, because it is by such pictures only, when at all well done, that you can derive anything like a truthful idea of the living whale as seen by his living hunters. But taken for all in all, by far the finest, though in some details not the most correct, presentations of whales and whaling scenes to be anywhere found are two large French engravings, well executed and taken from paintings by one garnery. Respectively, they represent attacks on the sperm and right whale. In the first engraving, a noble sperm whale is depicted in full majesty of might, just risen beneath a boat from the profundities of the ocean and bearing high in the air upon his back the terrific wreck of the stoven planks. The prow of the boat is partially unbroken and is drawn just balancing upon the monster's spine, standing in that prow for that one single incomputable flash of time you behold an oarsman, half shrouded by the incensed boiling spout of the whale and in the act of leaping as if from a precipice. 
The action of the whole thing is wonderfully good and true. The half-emptied line tub floats on the whitened sea. The wooden poles of the spilled harpoons obliquely bob in it. The heads of the swimming crew are scattered about the whale in contrasting expressions of affright, while in the black, stormy distance the ship is bearing down upon the scene. Serious fault might be found with the anatomical details of this whale, but let that pass, since for the life of me I could not draw so good a one. In the second engraving, the boat is in the act of drawing alongside the barnacled flank of a large running right whale that rolls his black weedy back in the sea like some mossy rock slide from the Patagonian cliffs. His jets are erect, full, and black like soot, so that from so abounding a smoke in the chimney you would think that there must be a brave supper cooking in the great bowels below. Sea fowls are pecking at the small crabs, shellfish, and other sea candies and macaroni, which the right whale sometimes carries on his pestilent back. And all the while, the thick-lipped leviathan is rushing through the deep, leaving tons of tumultuous white curds in his wake and causing the slight boat to rock in the swells like a skiff caught nigh the paddle wheels of an ocean steamer. Thus, the foreground is all raging commotion, but behind, in admirable artistic contrast, is the glassy level of a sea becalmed, the drooping, unstarched sails of the powerless ship, and the inert mass of a dead whale a conquered fortress, with the flag of capture lazily hanging from the whale pole inserted into his spout hole. Who Garnery the painter is, or was, I know not, but my life for it he was either practically conversant with the subject, or else marvelously tutored by some experienced whaleman. The French are the lads for painting action. Go and gaze upon all the paintings of Europe, and where will you find such a gallery of living and breathing commotion on canvas as in that triumphal hall at Versailles, where the beholder fights his way pell-mell through the consecutive great battles of France, where every sword seems a flash of the northern lights, and the successive armed kings and emperors dash by like a charge of crowned centaurs. Not wholly unworthy of a place in that gallery are these sea battle pieces of garnery. The natural aptitude of the French for seizing the picturesqueness of things seems to be peculiarly evinced in what paintings and engravings they have of their whaling scenes. With not one-tenth of England's experience in the fishery, and not the thousandth part of that of the Americans, they have nevertheless furnished both nations with the only finished sketches at all capable of conveying the real spirit of the whale hunt. For the most part, the English and American whale draftsmen seem entirely content with presenting the mechanical outline of things, such as the vacant profile of the whale, which, so far as picturesqueness of effort is concerned, is about tantamount to sketching the profile of an pyramid. Even Scoresby, the justly renowned right whaleman, after giving us a stiff full length of the Greenland whale and three or four delicate miniatures of narwhals and porpoises, treats us to a series of classical engravings of boat hooks, chopping knives, and grapnels, and with the microscopic diligence of a Lewin hook, submits to the inspection of a shivering world 96 facsimiles of magnified Arctic snow crystals. I mean no disparagement to the excellent voyager, I honor him for a veteran, but in so important a matter it was certainly an oversight not to have procured for every crystal a sworn affidavit taken before a Greenland justice of the peace. In addition to these two fine engravings from Garnery, there are two other French engravings worthy of note, by someone who subscribes himself H. Durand. 
One of them, though not precisely adapted to our present purpose, nevertheless deserves mention on other accounts. It is a quiet noon scene among the Isles of the Pacific. A French whaler, anchored in shore in a calm and lazily taking water on board, the loosened sails of the ship and the long leaves of the palms in the background both drooping together in the breezeless air. The effect is very fine, when considered with reference to its presenting the hardy fishermen under one of their few aspects of oriental repose. The other engraving is quite a different affair. The ship hove to under the open sea and in the very heart of the leviathanic life, with a right whale alongside. The vessel, in the act of cutting in, hove over to the monster as if to a key, and a boat hurriedly pushing off from this scene of activity is about giving chase to whales in the distance. The harpoons and lances lie leveled for use. Three oarsmen are just setting the mast in its hole, while from a sudden roll of the sea the little craft stands half erect out of the water like a rearing horse. From the ship the smoke of the torments of the boiling whale is going up like the smoke over a village of smithies, and to windward a black cloud rising up with earnest of squalls and rains seems to quicken the activity of the excited seamen. Chapter 57 Of Whales in Paint, in Teeth, in Wood, in Sheet Iron, in Stone, in Mountains, in Stars On Tower Hill, as you go down to the London docks, you may have seen a crippled beggar, or kedger, as the sailors say, holding a painted board before him representing the tragic scene in which he lost his leg. There are three whales and three boats, and one of the boats, presumed to contain the missing leg in all its original integrity, is being crunched by the jaws of the foremost whale. Any time these ten years, they tell me, has that man held up that picture and exhibited that stump to an incredulous world. But the time of his justification has now come. His three whales are as good whales as were ever published in Wapping. At any rate, and his stump as unquestionable a stump as any you will find in the western clearings. But, though forever mounted on that stump, never a stump speech does the poor whaleman make, but with downcast eyes stands ruefully contemplating his own amputation. Throughout the Pacific, and also in Nantucket and New Bedford and Sag Harbor, you will come across lively sketches of whales and whaling scenes graven by the fishermen themselves on sperm whale teeth or ladies' busks wrought out of the right whale bone, and other little scrimshander articles, as the whalemen call the numerous little ingenious contrivances they elaborately carve out of the rough material in their hours of ocean leisure. Some of them have little boxes of dentistical-looking implements specially intended for the scrimshandering business, but in general they toil with their jackknives alone, and with that almost omnipotent tool of the sailor they will turn you out anything you please, in the way of a mariner's fancy. Long exile from Christendom and civilization inevitably restores a man to that condition in which God placed him, i.e. what is called savagery. Your true whale hunter is as much a savage as an Iroquois. I myself am a savage, owing no allegiance but to the king of the cannibals, and ready at any moment to rebel against him. Now, one of the peculiar characteristics of the savage in his domestic hours is his wonderful patience of industry. An ancient Hawaiian war club, or spear paddle, in its full multiplicity and elaboration of carving, is as great a trophy of human perseverance as a Latin lexicon. 
For with but a bit of broken seashell or a shark's tooth, that miraculous intricacy of wood network has been achieved, and it has cost steady years of steady application. As with the Hawaiian savage, so with the white sailor savage. With the same marvelous patience and with the same single shark's tooth of his one poor jackknife, he will carve you a bit of bone sculpture not quite as workmanlike, but as close-packed in its maziness of design as the Greek savage Achilles' shield and full of barbaric spirit and suggestiveness as the prince of that fine old Dutch savage Albert Durer. Wooden whales, or whales cut in profile out of the small, dark slabs of the noble South Sea warwood, are frequently met with in the forecastles of American whalers. Some of them are done with much accuracy. At some old gable-roofed country houses, you will see brass whales hung by the tail for knockers to the roadside door. When the porter is sleepy, the anvil-headed whale would be best. But these knocking whales are seldom remarkable as faithful essays. On the spires of some old-fashioned churches you will see sheet-iron whales placed there for weathercocks. But they are so elevated, and besides that are, to all intents and purposes, so labeled with HANDS OFF, you cannot examine them closely enough to decide upon their merit. In bony, ribby regions of the earth, where at the base of high broken cliffs masses of rock lie strewn in fantastical groupings upon the plain, you will often discover images as of the petrified forms of the leviathan partly merged in grass, which of a windy day breaks against them in a surf of green surges. Then again, in mountainous countries where the traveler is continually girdled by amphitheatrical heights, here and there, from some lucky point of view, you will catch passing glimpses of the profiles of whales defined along the undulating ridges. But you must be a thorough whaleman to see these sights, and not only that, but if you wish to return to such a sight again, you must be sure to take the exact intersecting latitude and longitude of your first standpoint, else so chance-like are such observations of the hills that your precise previous standpoint would require a laborious rediscovery, like the Saloma Islands, which still remain incognita, though once high-ruffed Mendana trod them and old Figuera chronicled them. Nor, when expandingly lifted by your subject, can you fail to trace out great whales in the starry heavens and boats in pursuit of them, as when, long filled with thoughts of war, the eastern nations saw armies locked in battle among the clouds. Thus, at the north, I have chased Leviathan round and round the pole with the revolutions of the bright points that first defined him to me. And beneath the effulgent Antarctic skies I have boarded the Argo Nevis and joined the chase against the starry Cetus far beyond the utmost stretch of Hydrus and the flying fish. With a frigate's anchors for my brindle bits and fasces of harpoons for spurs, would I could mount that whale and leap the topmost skies to see whether the fabled heavens with all their countless tents really lie encamped beyond my mortal sight. Chapter 58. Brit. Steering northeastward from the Crozettes, we fell in with vast meadows of Brit, the minute yellow substance upon which the right whale largely feeds. For leagues and leagues it undulated round us so that we seemed to be sailing through boundless fields of ripe and golden wheat. On the second day, numbers of right whales were seen who, secure from the attack of a sperm whaler like the Pequod, with open jaws sluggishly swam through the Brit, 
which, adhering to the fringing fibers of that wondrous Venetian blind in their mouths, was in that manner separated from the water that escaped at the lip. As morning mowers, who side by side slowly and seethingly advance their scythes through the long, wet grass of marshy meads, even so these monsters swam, making a strange, grassy cutting sound and leaving behind them endless swaths of blue upon the yellow sea. Footnote. That part of the sea known among whalemen as the Brazil Banks does not bear that name as the banks of Newfoundland do because of there being shallows and soundings there, but because of this remarkable meadow-like appearance caused by the vast drifts of Brit continually floating in those latitudes where the right whale is often chased. End footnote. But it was only the sound they made as they parted the Brit which at all reminded one of mowers. Seen from the masthead, especially when they paused and were stationary for a while, their vast black forms looked more like lifeless masses of rock than anything else. And as in the great hunting countries of India, the stranger at a distance will sometimes pass on the plains recumbent elephants without knowing them to be such, taking them for bare, blackened elevations of the soil. Even so, often with him who for the first time beholds this species of leviathans in the sea. And even when recognized at last, their immense magnitude renders it very hard really to believe that such bulky masses of overgrowth can possibly be instinct, in all parts, with the same sort of life that lives in a dog or a horse. Indeed, in other respects, you can hardly regard any creatures of the deep with the same feelings that you do those of the shore. For though some old naturalists have maintained that all creatures of the land are of their kind in the sea, and though taking a broad general view of the thing this may very well be, yet coming to specialities where, for example, does the ocean furnish any fish that in disposition answers to the sagacious kindness of the dog. The accursed shark alone can in any generic respect be said to bear comparative analogy to him. But though to landsmen in general the native inhabitants of the seas have ever been regarded with emotions unspeakably unsocial and repelling, though we know the sea to be an everlasting terra incognita so that Columbus sailed over numberless unknown worlds to discover his one superficial western one, though by vast odds the most terrific of all mortal disasters have immemorially and indiscriminately befallen tens and hundreds of thousands of those who have gone upon the waters, though but for a moment's consideration will teach that however baby man may brag of his science and skill, and however much in a flattering future that science and skill may augment, yet forever and forever, to the crack of doom, the sea will insult and murder him, and pulverize the stateliest, stiffest frigate he can make. Nevertheless, by the continual repetition of these very impressions, man has lost that sense of the full awfulness of the sea, which aboriginally belongs to it. The first boat we read of floated on an ocean that with Portuguese vengeance had whelmed a whole world without leaving so much as a widow. That same ocean rolls now. That same ocean destroyed the wrecked ships of last year. Yea, foolish mortals, Noah's flood is not yet subsided. Two-thirds of the world it yet covers. Wherein differ the sea and the land, that a miracle upon one is not a miracle upon the other? 
Preternatural terrors rested upon the Hebrews when, under the feet of Korah and his company, the live ground opened and swallowed them up forever, yet not a modern sun ever sets, but in precisely the same manner the sea swallows up ships and crews. But not only is the sea such a foe to man who is an alien to it, but it is also a fiend to its own offspring worse than the Persian host who murdered his own guests, sparing not the creatures which itself hath spawned, like a savage tigress that tossing in the jungle overlays her own cubs, so the sea dashes even the mightiest whales against the rocks, and leaves them there side by side with the split wrecks of ships. No mercy, no power, but its own controls it. Panting and snorting like a mad battle steed that has lost its rider, the masterless ocean overruns the globe. Consider the subtleness of the sea, how its most dreaded creatures glide underwater, unapparent for the most part, and treacherously hidden beneath the loveliest tints of azure. Consider also the devilish brilliance and beauty of many of its most remorseless tribes, as the dainty embellished shape of many species of sharks. Consider, once more, the universal cannibalism of the sea, all whose creatures prey upon each other, carrying on eternal war since the world began. Consider all this, and then turn to this green, gentle, and most docile earth. Consider them both, the sea and the land. And do you not find a strange analogy to something in yourself? For as this appalling ocean surrounds the verdant land, so in the soul of man there lies one insular Tahiti, full of peace and joy, but encompassed by all the horrors of the half-known life. God keep thee. Push not off from that isle. Thou canst never return. Chapter 59. Squid. Slowly wading through the meadows of Brit, the Pequod still held on her way northeastward towards the Isle of Java, a gentle air impelling her keel so that in the surrounding serenity her three tall tapering masts mildly waved to that languid breeze, as three mild palms on a plain. And still, at wide intervals in the silvery night, the lonely, alluring jet would be seen. But one transparent blue morning when a stillness almost preternatural spread over the sea, however unattended by any stagnant calm, when the long burnished sunglade on the waters seemed a golden finger laid across them, enjoying some secrecy, when the slippered waves whispered together as they softly ran on, in this profound hush of the visible sphere, a strange specter was seen by Dago from the main masthead. In the distance, a great white mass lazily rose and rising higher and higher and disentangling itself from the azure at last gleamed before our prow like a snowslide, new slid from the hills. Thus glistening for a moment, as slowly it subsided and sank, then once more rose and silently gleamed. It seemed not a whale, and yet, is this Moby Dick? thought Dago. Again the phantom went down, but on reappearing once more with a stiletto-like cry that startled every man from his nod, the negro yelled out, There! There again! There she breaches! Right ahead! The white whale! The white whale! 
Upon this, the seamen rushed to the yardarms, as in swarming time the bees rushed to the bows. Bareheaded in the sultry sun, Ahab stood on the bowsprit and with one hand pushed far behind in readiness to wave his orders to the helmsman, cast his eager glance in the direction indicated aloft by the outstretched motionless arm of Dago. Whether the fitting attendance of the one still and solitary jet had gradually worked upon Ahab, so that he was now prepared to connect the ideas of mildness and repose with the first sight of the particular whale he pursued, however this was, or whether his eagerness betrayed him, whichever way it might have been, no sooner did he distinctly perceive the white mass than with a quick intensity he instantly gave orders for lowering. The four boats were soon in the water, Ahab's in advance, and all swiftly pulling towards their prey. Soon it went down, and while, with oars suspended, we were awaiting its reappearance, lo, in the same spot where it sank, once more it slowly rose. Almost forgetting for a moment all thoughts of Moby Dick, we now gazed at the most wondrous phenomenon which the secret seas have hitherto revealed to mankind, a vast, pulpy mass, furlongs in length and breadth, of a glancing cream color lay floating on the water, innumerable long arms radiating from its center, curling and twisting like a nest of anacondas, as if blindly to clutch at any hapless object within reach. No perceptible face or front did it have, no conceivable token of either sensation or instinct, but undulated there on the billows an unearthly, formless, chance-like apparition of life. As, with a low sucking sound, it slowly disappeared again, Starbuck still gazing at the agitated waters where it had sunk, with a wild voice exclaimed, Almost rather I'd seen Moby Dick and fought him than to have seen thee, thou white ghost. What was that, sir? said Flask. The great live squid, which they say few whale ships ever beheld, and returned to their ports to tell of it. But Ahab said nothing. Turning his boat, he sailed back to the vessel, the rest as silently following. Whatever superstitions the sperm whalemen in general have connected with the sight of this object, certain it is that a glimpse of it being so very unusual that circumstance has gone far to invest it with portentousness. So rarely is it beheld that though one and all of them declare it to be the largest animated thing in the ocean, yet very few of them have any but the most vague ideas concerning its true nature and form. Notwithstanding, they believe it to furnish to the sperm whale his only food. For though other species of whales may find their food above water and may have been seen by man in the act of feeding, the spermaceti whale obtains his whole food in unknown zones below the surface, and only by inference is it that anyone can tell of what precisely that food consists. At times, when closely pursued, he will disgorge what are supposed to be the detached arms of the squid, some of them thus exhibited exceeding twenty and thirty feet in length. They fancy that the monster to which these arms belonged ordinarily clings by them to the bed of the ocean and that the sperm whale, unlike other species, is supplied with teeth in order to attack and tear it. There seems some ground to imagine that the great kraken of Bishop Potompadon may ultimately resolve itself into squid. The matter in which the bishop describes it as alternately rising and sinking with some other particulars he narrates in all this the two correspond, but much abatement is necessary with respect to the incredible bulk he assigns it.
By some naturalists who have vaguely heard rumors of the mysterious creature here spoken of, it is included among the class of cuttlefish, to which, indeed, in certain external respects, it would seem to belong, but only as the Anak of the tribe. Chapter 60. The Line With reference to the whaling scene shortly to be described, as well as for the better understanding of all similar scenes elsewhere presented, I have here to speak of the magical, sometimes horrible, whale line. The line, originally used in the fishery, was of the best hemp, slightly vapored with tar, not impregnated with it as in the case of ordinary ropes, for while tar, as ordinarily used, makes the hemp more pliable to the rope maker and also renders the rope itself more convenient to the sailor for common ship use, yet not only would the ordinary quantity too much stiffen the whale line for the close coiling to which it must be subjected, but as most seamen are beginning to learn, tar in general by no means adds to the rope's durability or strength however much it may give it compactness and gloss. Of late years, the manila rope has in the American fishery almost entirely superseded hemp as a material for whale lines, for, though not so durable as hemp, it is stronger and far more soft and elastic, and I will add, since there is an aesthetics in all things, is much more handsome and becoming to the boat than hemp. Hemp is a dusky, dark fellow, a sort of Indian, but Manila is a golden-haired Circassian to behold. The whale line is only two-thirds of an inch in thickness. At first sight, you would not think it so strong as it really is. By experiment, its one and fifty yards will each suspend a weight of one hundred and twenty pounds so that the whole rope will bear a strain nearly equal to three tons. In length, the common sperm whale line measures something over two hundred fathoms. Towards the stern of the boat, it is spirally coiled away in a tub, not like the worm pipe of a still, though, but so as to form one round, cheese-shaped mass of densely bedded sheaves, or layers of concentric spiralizations, without any hollow but the heart, or minute vertical tube formed at the axis of the cheese. As the least tangle or kink in the coiling would, in running out, infallibly take someone's arm, leg, or entire body off, the utmost precaution is used in stowing the line in its tube. Some harpooners will consume almost an entire morning in this business, carrying the line high aloft, then reeving it downwards through a block towards the tub, so as in the act of coiling to free it from all possible wrinkles and twists. In the English boats, two tubs are used instead of one, the same line being continuously coiled in both tubs. There is some advantage to this, because these twin tubs being so small, they fit much more readily into the boat and do not strain it so much, whereas the American tub, nearly three feet in diameter and of proportionate depth, makes a rather bulky freight for a craft whose planks are but one half inch in thickness, for the bottom of the whaleboat is like critical ice, which will bear up a considerable distributed weight, but not very much of a concentrated one. When the painted canvas cover is clapped on the American line tub, the boat looks as if it were pulling off with a prodigious great wedding cake to present to the whales. Both ends of the line are exposed, the lower end terminating in an eye splice or loop coming up from the bottom against the side of the tub and hanging over its edge completely disengaged from everything. This arrangement of the lower end is necessary on two accounts. 
first in order to facilitate the fastening of it to an additional line from a neighboring boat in case the stricken whale should sound so deep as to threaten to carry off the entire line originally attached to the harpoon. In these instances, the whale, of course, is shifted like a mug of ale, as it were, from one boat to the other, though the first boat always hovers at hand to assist its consort. Second, this arrangement is indispensable for common safety's sake, for were the lower end of the line in any way attached to the boat, and were the whale then to run the line out to the end almost in a single smoking minute, as he sometimes does, he would not stop there, for the doomed boat would infallibly be dragged down after him into the profundity of the sea, and in that case no town crier would ever find her again. Before lowering the boat for the chase, the upper end of the line is taken aft from the tub and passed round the loggerhead there, is again carried forward the entire length of the boat, resting crosswise upon the loom or handle of every man's oar so that it jogs against his wrist in rowing, and also passing between the men as they alternately sit at the opposite gunnels, to the leaded chocks or grooves in the extreme pointed prow of the boat where a wooden pin or skewer the size of a common quill prevents it from slipping out out. From the chocks it hangs in slight festoon over the bows and is then passed inside the boat again in some ten or twenty fathoms, called box line, being coiled upon the box in the bows, it continues its way to the gunwale still a little further aft and is then attached to the short warp. The rope is immediately connected with the harpoon, but previous to that connection the short warp goes through sundry mystifications too tedious to detail. Thus, the whale line folds the whole boat in its complicated coils, twisting and writhing around it in almost every direction. All the oarsmen are involved in its perilous contortions so that, to the timid eye of the landsmen, they seem as Indian jugglers, with the deadliest snakes sportively festooning their limbs. Nor can any son of mortal woman, for the first time, seat himself amid these hempen intricacies, and, while straining at his utmost at the oar, bethink him that any unknown instant the harpoon may be darted, and all these horrible contortions be put in play like ringing lightnings. He cannot be thus circumstanced without a shot that makes the very marrow in his bones to quiver in him like shaken jelly. Yet habit. Strange thing. What cannot habit accomplish? Gayer sallies, more merry mirth, better jokes, and brighter repartee you never heard over your mahogany than you will hear over the half-inch white cedar of the whaleboat. When thus hung in hangman's nooses, and like the six burghers of Calais before King Edward, the six men composing the crew pull into the jaws of death with a halter around every neck, as you may say. Perhaps a very little thought will now enable you to account for those repeated whaling disasters, some few of which are casually chronicled, of this man or that man being taken out of the boat by the line and lost. For when the line is darted out, to be seated then in the boat is like being seated in the midst of the manifold whizzings of a steam engine in full play, when every flying beam and shaft and wheel is grazing you. It is worse, for you cannot sit motionless in the heart of those perils, because the boat is rocking like a cradle and you are pitched one way and the other without the slightest warning, and only a certain self-adjusting buoyancy and simultaneousness of motion and action can you escape being made a mazeppa of and run away with where the all-seeing sun himself could never pierce you out. Again, 
As the profound calm which only apparently precedes and prophecies of the storm is perhaps more awful than the storm itself, for indeed the calm is but the wrapper and envelope of the storm and contains in itself all as the seemingly harmless rifle holds the fatal powder and the ball and the explosion, so the graceful repose of the line as it silently serpentines about the oarsmen before being brought into actual play. This is a thing which carries more of true terror than any other aspect of this dangerous affair. But why say more? All men live enveloped in whale lines. All are born with halters round their necks, but it is only when caught in the swift, sudden turn of death that mortals realize the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. And if you be a philosopher, though seated in the whaleboat, you would not at heart feel one whit more of terror than though seated before your evening fire with a poker, and not a harpoon by your side. Chapter 61 Stub Kills a Whale If to Starbuck the apparition of the squid was a thing of portents, to Queequeg it was quite a different object. When you see him quid said the savage, honing his harpoon in the bow of his hoisted boat. Then you quick see him parm whale. The next day was exceedingly still and sultry, and with nothing special to engage them, the Pequod's crew could hardly resist the spell of sleep induced by such a vacant sea. For this part of the Indian Ocean, though, which we then were voyaging in, is not what whalemen call a lively ground. That is, it affords fewer glimpses of porpoises, dolphins, flying fish, and other vivacious denizens of more stirring waters than those off the Rio de la Plata or the inshore ground off Peru. It was my turn to stand at the foremast head, and with my shoulders leaning against the slackened royal shrouds, to and fro I idly swayed in what seemed an enchanted air. No resolution could withstand it in that dreamy mood losing all consciousness. At last my soul went out of my body, though my body still continued to sway as a pendulum will, long after the power which first moved it is withdrawn. Ere forgetfulness altogether came over me, I had noticed that the seamen at the main and mizzen mastheads were already drowsy so that at last all three of us lifelessly swung from the spars, and for every swing that we made there was a nod from below from the slumbering helmsman. The waves, too, nodded their indolent crests, and across the wide trace of the sea, east nodded to west, and the sun over all. Suddenly bubbles seemed bursting beneath my closed eyes, like vices my hands grasped the shrouds, some invisible gracious agency preserved me, with a shock I came back to life, and lo, close under our lee, not forty fathoms off, a gigantic sperm whale lay rolling in the water like a capsized hull of a frigate, his broad glossy back of an Ethiopian hue glistening in the sun's rays like a mirror. But lazily undulating in the trough of the sea, and ever and anon tranquilly spouting his vapory jet, the whale looked like a portly burger smoking his pipe of a warm afternoon. But that pipe, poor whale, was thy last. As if struck by some enchanter's wand, the sleepy ship and every sleeper in it all at once started into wakefulness, and more than a score of voices from all parts of the vessel, simultaneously with the three notes from aloft, shouted forth the accustomed cry as the great fish slowly and regularly spouted the sparkling brine into the air. "'Clear away the boats! Luff!' cried Ahab, and obeying his own order, he dashed the helm down before the helmsman could handle the spokes. 
The sudden exclamations of the crew must have alarmed the whale, and ere the boats were down, majestically turning, he swam away to leeward, but with such a steady tranquility and making so few ripples as he swam that, thinking after all he might not as yet be alarmed, Ahab gave orders that not an oar should be used, and no man must speak but in whispers. So, seated like Ontario Indians on the gunwales of the boats, we swiftly but silently paddled along, the calm not admitting of the noiseless sails being set. Presently, as we thus glided in the chase, the monster perpendicularly flitted his tail forty feet into the air and then sank out of sight like a tower swallowed up. There go flukes, was the cry, an announcement immediately followed by Stubbs producing his match and igniting his pipe, for now a respite was granted. After the full interval of his sounding had elapsed, the whale rose again, and being now in advance of the smoker's boat and much nearer to it than any of the others, Stubb counted upon the honor of the capture. It was obvious now that the whale had at length become aware of his pursuers. All silence of cautiousness was therefore no longer of use. Paddles were dropped and oars came loudly into play, and still puffing on his pipe, Stubb cheered on his crew to the assault. Yes, a mighty change had come over the fish. All alive to his jeopardy, he was going head out, that part obliquely projecting from the mad yeast which he brewed. Footnote. It will be seen in some other place of what a very light substance the entire interior of the sperm whale's enormous head consists, though apparently the most massive, it is by far the most buoyant part about him, so that with ease he elevates it in the air and invariably does so when going at his utmost speed, besides such as the breadth of the upper part of the front of the head and such the tapering cutwater formation of the lower part that by obliquely elevating his head he thereby may be said to transform himself from the bluff-bowed sluggish galliot into a sharp-pointed New York pilot boat. Starter! Starter, my men! Don't hurry yourselves, take plenty of time. But starter! Starter! Like thunderclaps, that's all! cried Stubbs, spluttering out the smoke as he spoke. Starter now! Give give him long! Give him strong stroke! Tashigo! Starter! Tash, my boy! Starter all, but keep cool! Keep cool! Cucumbers in the wind! Easy! Easy! Only starter like grim death and grinning devils and raise the buried, deep, perpendicular head out of their graves, boys! That's her! That's all! Starter! Wahoo! Wahee! screamed the gay header in reply, raising some old war whoop to the skies, as every oarsman in the strained boat involuntarily bounced forward in one tremendous leading stroke which the eager Indian gave. But his wild screams were answered by others quite as wild. Kahi! Kahi! yelled Dago, straining forwards and backwards in his seat like a pacing tiger in his cage. Kala! Kulo! howled Queequeg as if smacking his lips over a mouthful of grenadier steak, and thus with oars and yells the keels cut the sea. Meanwhile, Stubb, retaining his place in the van, still encouraged his men to the onset, all the while puffing the smoke from his mouth. Like desperados, they tugged and they strained till the welcome cry was heard. Stand up, Tashigo! Give it to him! The harpoon was hurled. Stern all! The oarsmen backed water the same moment something went hot and hissing along every one of their wrists. It was the magical line. An instant before, Stubb had swiftly caught two additional turns with it round the loggerhead, whence, by reason of his increased rapid circlings, a hempen blue smoke now jetted up and mingled with the steady fumes from his pipe. As the line passed round and round the loggerhead, so also just before reaching the point, it blisteringly passed through and through both of Stubb's hands, from which the handcloths, or 
or squares of quilted canvas, sometimes worn at these times, had accidentally dropped. It was like holding an enemy's sharp two-edged sword by the blade and that enemy all the time striving to wrest it out of your clutch. What the line? What the line? cried Stubb to the tub oarsman, him seated by the tub, who, snatching off his hat, dashed seawater into it. Footnote. Partly to show the indispensableness of this act, it may be here stated that in the old Dutch fishery, a mop was used to dash the running line with water. In many other ships, a wooden piggin or baler is set apart for that purpose. Your hat, however, is most convenient. End footnote. More turns were taken so that the line began holding its place. The boat now flew through the boiling water like a shark, all fins. Stubb and Tashtigo higher changed places, stem to stern, a staggering business truly in that rocking commotion. From the vibrating line extending the entire length of the upper part of the boat, and from its now being more tight than a harp string, you would have thought the craft had two keels, one cleaving the water, the other the air, as the boat churned on through both opposing elements at once. A continual cascade played at the bows, a ceaseless whirling eddy in her wake, and the slightest motion from within, even but of a little finger, the vibrating, cracking craft canted over her spasmodic gunwale into the sea. Thus they rushed, each man with might and main clinging to his seat to prevent being tossed to the foam, and the tall form of Tashtigo at the steering oar crouched almost double in order to bring down his center of gravity. Whole Atlantics and Pacific seemed passed as they shot on their way till at length the whale somewhat slackened his flight. Hold in, hold in, cried Stubb to the bowsman, and facing round towards the whale, all hands began pulling the boat up to him, while yet the boat was being towed on. Soon, ranging up by his flank, Stubb, firmly planting his knee in the clumsy cleat, darted dart after dart into the flying fish. At the word of command, the boat alternately sterning out of the way of the whale's horrible wallow and then ranging up for another fling. The red tide now poured from all sides of the monster like brooks down a hill. His tormented body rolled not in brine but in blood, which bubbled and seethed for furlongs behind in their wake. The slanting sun playing upon this crimson pond in the sea sent back its reflection into every face, so that they all glowed to each other like red men. And all the while, jet after jet of white smoke was agonizingly shot from the spiracle of the whale, and vehement puff after puff from the mouth of the excited headsman, as at every dart hauling in upon his crooked lance, by the line attached to it, Stubb straightened it again and again, by a few rapid blows against the gunwale, then again and again sent it into the whale. Pull up, pull up, he now cried to the bowsman as the waning whale relaxed in his wrath. Pull up, Kosu! And the boat ranged along the fish's flank. When reaching far over the bow, Stubb slowly churned his long, sharp lance into the fish and kept it there, carefully churning and churning as if cautiously seeking to feel after some gold watch that the whale might have swallowed, and which he was fearful of breaking ere he could hook it out. But that gold watch he sought was the innermost life of the fish. And now it is struck, for, starting from his trance into an unspeakable thing called his flurry, the monster horribly wallowed in his blood, overwrapped himself in an impenetrable, mad, boiling spray, so that the imperiled craft, instantly dropping astern, had much ado blindly to struggle out from that frenzied twilight into the clear air of the day. And now, abating in his fury, the whale once more rolled into view, surging from side to side, spasmodically dilating and contracting his spout hole, with sharp, cracking, agonized respirations. At last, gush after gush of clotted red gore, as if it had been the purple lees of red wine shot into the frighted air, 
and falling back again ran dripping down his motionless flanks into the sea. His heart had burst. He's dead, Mr. Stubb, said Dago. Yes, both I've smoked out. And withdrawing his own from his mouth, Stubb scattered the dead ashes over the water and for a moment stood thoughtfully eyeing the vast corpse he had made. Chapter 62 The Dart A word concerning an incident in the last chapter. According to the invariable usage of the fishery, the whaleboat pushes off from the ship, with the headsman or whale-killer as temporary steersman and the harpooner or whale-fastener pulling the foremost oar, the one known as the harpooner oar. Now it needs a strong, nervous arm to strike the first iron into the fish, for often, in what is called a long dart, the heavy implement has to be flung a distance of twenty or thirty feet. But however prolonged and exhausting the chase, the harpooner is expected to pull his oar meanwhile to the utmost. Indeed, he is expected to set an example of superhuman activity to the rest, not only by incredible rowing, but by repeated loud and intrepid exclamations, and what it is to keep shouting at the top of one's compass while all the other muscles are strained and half started what that is none know but those who have tried it for one i cannot ball very heartily and work very recklessly at one and the same time in this straining bawling state then with his back to the fish all at once the exhausted harpooner hears the excited cry stand up and give it to him he now has to drop and secure his oar, turn round on his center halfway, seize the harpoon from the crotch, and with what little strength may remain, he essays to pitch it somehow into the whale. No wonder, taking the whole fleet of whalemen in a body, that out of fifty fair chances for a dart, not five are successful. No wonder that so many hapless harpooners are madly cursed and disrated. No wonder that some of them actually burst their blood vessels in the boat. No wonder that some sperm whalemen are absent four years with four barrels. No wonder that to many ship owners whaling is but a losing concern, for it is the harpooner that makes the voyage, and if you take the breath out of his body, how can you expect to find it when most wanted? Again, if the dart be successful, then at the second critical instant, that is, when the whale starts to run, the boat header and the harpooner likewise start running fore and aft, to the immediate jeopardy of themselves and everyone else. It is then they change places, and the headsman, the chief officer of the little craft, takes his proper station in the bows of the boat. Now I care not who maintains the contrary, but all this is both foolish and unnecessary. The headsman should stay in the bows from first to last, he should both dart the harpoon and the lance, and no rowing whatever should be expected of him, except under circumstances obvious to any fisherman. I know that this would sometimes involve a slight loss of speed in the chase, but long experience in the various whalemen of more than one nation has convinced me that in the vast majority of failures in the fishery, it has not by any means been so much the speed of the whale as the before-described exhaustion of the harpooner that has caused them. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet from out of idleness and not from out of toil. Chapter 63. The Crotch. Out of the trunk, the branches grow. Out of them, the twigs. So, in productive subjects, grow the chapters. The crotch, alluded to on a previous page, deserves independent mention. It is a notched stick of a peculiar form, some two feet in length, which is perpendicularly inserted into the starboard gunwale near the bow for the purpose of furnishing a rest for the wooden extremity of the harpoon, whose other naked barbed end slopingly projects from the prow. 
Thereby, the weapon is instantly at hand to its hurler, who snatches it up as readily from its rest as a backwoodsman swings his rifle from the wall. It is customary to have two harpoons reposing in the crotch, respectively called the first and second harpoons. But these two harpoons, each by its own cord, are both connected with the line, the object being this, to dart them both, if possible, one instantly after the other into the same whale, so that if by the coming drag one should drag out, the other may still retain a hold. It has a doubling of the chances. But it very often happens that, owing to the instantaneous, violent, convulsive running of the whale upon receiving the first iron, it becomes impossible for the harpooner, however lightning-like in his movements, to pitch the second iron into him. Nevertheless, as the second iron is already connected to the line, and the line is running, hence that weapon must, at all events, be anticipatingly tossed out of the boat somehow, somewhere, else the most terrible jeopardy would involve all hands. Tumbling into the water, it accordingly is, in such cases, the spare coils of box line mentioned in a preceding chapter making this feat, in most instances, prudently practicable. But this critical act is not always unattended with the saddest and most fatal casualties. Furthermore, you must know that when the second iron is thrown overboard, it thenceforth becomes a dangling, sharp-edged terror, skittishly curvetting about both boat and whale, entangling the lines or cutting them and making a prodigious sensation in all directions. Nor, in general, is it possible to secure it again until the whale is fairly captured and a corpse. Consider now how it must be in the case of four boats, all engaging one unusually strong, active, and knowing whale, when owing to these qualities in him, as well as to a thousand concurring accidents of such an audacious enterprise, eight or ten loose second irons may simultaneously be dangling about him. For, of course, each boat is supplied with several harpoons to bend on to the line, should the first one be ineffectually darted without recovery. All these particulars are faithfully narrated here, as they will not fail to elucidate several more important, however intricate, passages in scenes hereafter to be painted. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. That's S-A-F-T-P at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.